Hi, I'm Winston, and welcome to the Real Estate Template. Today we have with us Brian Boyd. He is a friend of mine. He is also my attorney and an investor that we're partnering a deal with at the moment. So I want to introduce Brian. Brian, how you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Winston. It's fun to be here. I enjoy helping people learn about real estate as well as you. And, you know, I'm excited to do the podcast today and maybe we can help people learn a little bit more about real estate. What I want to get across to the people that are with us is I want them to understand that real estate is something that any of us can do. No matter where they are, no matter who they think they are or are not, that anyone can do it. I have people that say, I'm 18 years old, can I do real estate? I'm a convicted felon, can I do real estate? Absolutely. I filed bankruptcy, can I do real estate? And, and I keep telling people anybody can do real estate, but I don't know that they all buy into it. So I would love to hear, number one, you're an attorney, so a little bit about that, and then a little bit about how you made the decision that you wanted to build some passive income and why you wanted to do that. Just a little bit about your story, so if you could share that. Sure, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to share that. So um, first of all about me, I... Grew up in Tennessee. I'm from East Tennessee, Chattanooga in particular. Uh, went to college at the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga, graduated, and then went on to law school in uh, Birmingham, Alabama at Sanford. Then after that, I went on to law school again because I'm a, I enjoy pain and got a master's degree in law at Georgetown University uh, in taxation. Uh, worked in D.C. for a while doing tax work and then matriculated back home and ended up in Nashville uh, really right around the time the real estate market started melting down in 2007 and eight. Okay. And in 2008, I lost my job and I you know, had all the student loan debt. I had a dog to take care of, you know, had to pay rent. I was recently divorced. So I needed to figure out how to get my feet under me. And after getting my, my firm back up and running and making some money, I learned that there's only one of me and there's only so many hours in the day. And so my income is limited. It is limited into what I can make. So I was out one day with a friend and we were turkey hunting and we were talking about passive income and how to create passive income. And there are a lot of ways to create passive income. You know, uh, he in particular does coin laundries. And so he buys and sets up coin laundries for other people and that's his passive income. It doesn't take a lot of his day. In fact, you know, he's got three or four of these now and he's making a great living. Well, I bought into that and against my better judgment because I don't <laughs> like early morning phone calls. And a year later after opening my own coin laundry, uh, I got a phone call at like six in the morning and this lady was irate about losing a quarter. And um, she woke you up at six o'clock. She morning woke me up at six o'clock in the morning because she lost a quarter. Nice. And um, so <laughs> I immediately called my friend that day. I'm like, hey, do you know anybody who wants to buy this thing from me? And so I sold it to um, a young man who had just inherited a lot of money and he wanted passive income as well. But along the way, I work in the area of real estate, real estate litigation, construction law, business, and tax. That's kind of my world I flow in. And I had represented all these developers along the way, and I was looking at their plans. I'm like, you know, if they would just tweak it this way or tweak it that way. And I was taking my tax background and overlaying it on top of their business plans. I'm like, oh, you could, you could really get some good tax benefits out of it. 
And little did I know there was this whole world out there of real estate investors that were already doing this, but nobody was talking about it. Mm -hmm. It was this little hidden gem that CPAs knew about or real estate investors knew about, but podcasts weren't really big back in 2011 and 12 and 13. And so by 2017, when I sold my coin laundry, I told my wife, I'm going to get into real estate investing. So prior to 2017, other than personal residence, you didn't own any investment real estate? I had no investment real estate okay. prior okay. to that whatsoever. In fact, the house that my wife and I currently live in was the first house I've ever bought. Really? Yes. Okay. So in we got married... A little bit later in life, we got married in our mid-30s and had a child right away. And then suddenly we're building a house and going on. So to undertake the, the purchase of a second home was kind of a big deal to us. At the same time, I was still focused on, I need to make money while I sleep or I'm going to burn out. I can't continue at the pace I was going. I was working six and seven days a week. I was putting in at least 12 hours a day and I just couldn't sustain it. And so real estate seemed to me the most tax efficient, long-term and hands-off approach I could take to creating wealth. Okay, but you just lost some people. Okay. You're an attorney. <laughs> Sorry. I've paid an attorney. Chances are y'all have paid an attorneys. It ain't like they make eight bucks an hour, they make a lot of money. And yet he's not happy with that lot of money. So, so let me explain more in depth. <laughs> Let's talk about that for a little bit. Um, when I graduated from Georgetown Law School in Washington, DC, I had a quarter million dollars in student loans. And there was no COVID, you know, moratorium on paying your student loans, you had to pay your student loans. And I believe people should pay what they owe. So I'm constantly paying my student loans, but now I've got a child and I've got a wife and I've got a mortgage and we both drive cars and I've got daycare and I've got soccer practice and I've got all these other things in life and life kind of catches up to you. Life shows up. Life shows up. <laughs> and what happens when you're a year or two into your personal residence and a piece of siding falls off your house. Well, that's not a warranty issue. That's on you. And so, you know, life just catches up with you. And I was putting as much money as I could into my retirement plan, but I was limited. Um, just like all retirement plans are limited. And I needed to figure out a way to take the pressure off because I wasn't being a good husband. I wasn't being a good father. I was miserable to be around. My health was terrible. And it was all because of the pressure of meeting all these obligations. Some of you out there are probably feeling that same exact pressure now. You know, life has got you by, the, um, by your ankles, let's just say, and holding you down. But it doesn't matter how much money you make. We live, we live to the means that we make, whether you're making a lot of money or making a little bit of money. We live to what we can live for. And people that are making hundreds of millions of dollars a year seem to be in the same trouble that the people that are making $60,000 a year are in because they spend more than what they make. And that's all they can make is what they can work. So you don't work an hour, you don't get paid for that hour. That's right. So I could be at the office 15 hours a day. And unless I'm working on a specific file for a client, 
I'm not getting paid. So it, it all just started to coalesce into this burden and I needed to figure out a way to be smarter about making money and how to make that money work for me instead of me working for the money. So I had some money in my retirement account and it was about $115,000. And that's what I liquidated out. People will tell you not to do it, but I bet on myself on this. And I bought that coin laundry and I cash flowed it for a year, sold it for a profit a year later, took that money and I did three things with it. One, I bought my wife a new wedding ring because when we got married, I was broke. And the wedding ring that she had, she I felt like she deserved something better. So that was the exactly. first thing I did. The second thing I did was pay off one of those student loans. I hate having personal debt. And so that was an albatross around my neck and I paid one of those loans off. It was like $30,000 and I just wrote them a check and I'm like, take it, just be gone. I don't want to hear from Sally Mae ever again. And the next thing I did was buy a short-term rental in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. And at the time I was representing a short-term rental management company that decided, hey, we can help you with this. They wanted into the market, so they took it. And they couldn't get that thing to rent to save their lives. They really couldn't. And so what happened was after a year, we sold it for a $70,000 profit. We turned around, took that $70,000 plus our equity in the property and bought 13 single family homes in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where I'm from. So what made that house worth 70,000 more in just one year? So that was interesting. So we bought it in 2017 and we sold it in 2018 after a full year of ownership, capital gains. And, um, it was below market. And when we bought it, we got a deal on it because they wanted to offload it. The property values in Gatlinburg have skyrocketed over the years, but typically this was a three bedroom, like three and a half bath, but it slept like 16 people. And that market at the time was just coming off of a massive fire that the Smoky Mountains had undergone in 2016 and 2017. So the whole area was kind of depressed for a bit. And it was starting to come back. So we we sold it on the uptick. So a huge part of that is buying right. Buying right, knowing what you're getting. And so when we turned around and bought these 13 family homes in Chattanooga, Tennessee, on average, we bought those houses for $40,000 a piece. Knowing, according to what we were told and the documents provided to us, that they were renting out for at least $800 a month. And as real estate investors, we always talk about the 1% rule. These properties easily met the 1% rule in long-term rentals. So that's kind of what led us to our journey. And now we have 19 properties, 20 some odd doors, three short-term rentals, and what 13 single-family homes in Chattanooga. We have a triplex in Knoxville. And we have, yeah, two, in, two short-terms in Gatlinburg and one in Montana. And so we're, we're doing just fine at this point, but now we've gotten to the point where we're really looking at this as, okay, we've built our base. We have our cash flow. Now let's take it to another level and retire one of us from our nine to five. So that's been since 2016 yes. to now. And you're looking at being able to retire your, your wife first, right? 
Yeah, we'll retire my wife Dawn first. She'll retire first because, quite honestly, um, she's more of a service-oriented person than I am. Um, I get, no. No, I don't know why. It's, just like, <laughs> it's that adversarial nature of being a lawyer. Um, it's like, you didn't pay your rent? What do you mean you didn't pay your rent? Um, so, yeah, that's that's where things are going for us. And then, you know, our deal that we're doing on these 10 properties over here. So, so the deal he's talking about there is we acquired a piece of property that we're going to get rezoned. We got the engineering done on it now, and we're going to present it to planning and zoning to, to build 10 townhomes on this piece of land. So that's going to be your, you've never partnered with anybody on a real estate deal, right? We have never had a partner on any deal. Ever. And I've never had a partner on any deal. Either. So this will be both of ours first time to ever partner with somebody else to do a deal. And I think we're both excited about it. We've known each other for six years now. So. Yes. Six so, or seven years. So yeah. we've known each other a long time and you know, we get along, we click well. So we think it'll be a, a great thing. We both know that, you know, I'm not going to deal with somebody I don't think can't bring the money needed to the table. And he's going to a deal with somebody he doesn't feel like can't bring the money to the table. So we'll be able to, we can support it. And we both got the personality that we're just going to get it done. So it really doesn't matter, you know, what's going on. We're just going to get that job done. So that's an interesting thing. That's an interesting experience for us. So I got a question. Yeah, yeah, so, absolutely. So I know the 1% rule. I was doing some math the other day. Mm-hmm. And we diagnosed about a, a dozen different house rentals and looking at different properties. What I'm coming out with at 7% interest, that the 1% rule is pretty much a break-even point at 7% interest, where at 5% interest, 4% interest, you can make good money off of it. Are you seeing the same thing? Do you have a different opinion on that? So what I'll say is that the inflation and the Fed's efforts to bring inflation down by increasing the interest rate um, is not something I think about terribly because of my entry point into my properties. I got in at about $40,000 a piece. If I put $40,000 into them, you know, I'm all in at 80 grand. Well, the minimum I rent a property out for is 1,050. So even once I service that note, I'm still ahead of the 1% rule because I am making more after servicing the debt paying property taxes and insurance and whatever maintenance, I'm still making, let's say, $400 a month or $800 a month, you know, if that's the case. It's not necessarily the case. Some properties, for example, we have one now that we bought for $53,000. Um, it got a new roof, new siding, new gutters. It's currently getting a new flooring system, new bathroom, new kitchen, new drywall, the whole shebang and we'll be totally into that property about $70,000 and we'll rent it out for $2,000 a month. It's a three, one. It's in a lovely little neighborhood. That's really up and coming. And that blows away the 1%. Rate. No, you showed me that right there. So, so I have a lot of people telling me they're trying to enter the real estate market right mm-hmm. now. And they looking at a $300,000 house that rents for $1,800 a month can they buy the house? No, it doesn't make sense it doesn't to buy, make any sense. buy the house. And and when I'm running numbers on those deals and I take into consideration the taxes and I take into consideration the insurance and the maintenance fees and the, you know, the attorney fees from time to time and what you're going to pay for an accountant to do their part, when you add all of that up and they're, 
it's on a $300,000 house now, your break-even point is probably around $2,800 if you're covering all those expenses. So be careful right now and, and run your numbers. Learn how to run them numbers. And I think Brian spends a lot of time running numbers also. The numbers are the key if you, if you ain't careful. The 1% rule, everything I have meets that rule now because I bought so cheap. I mean, right. you know, we got a house that we just built that we, that we haven't sold yet. We've come down on the price, and I've come down all of them come down on the price. So I told my wife yesterday, I said, just rent the house out. We can rent it for $3,000 a month. I got about two fifty dollars in it. It's worth about five hundred. dollars So a win. if I can't get the five hundred dollars for it, let me just rent it. I'm, I'm, I'm making money off of the rent yeah. even at, even at $3,000 a month. It doesn't matter what it's worth. I only got two fifty dollars in it, so I'm going off of that number. So we're going to rent that house until we don't. And, and I'm okay because I can get appreciation off of that right there. And, Absolutely. and, and that'll, that'll continue to grow. But, but I keep cautioning people not to go out and just use the 1% rule today, buying that market rent or market value, thinking you're going to make a ton of money. Do, you can have the 1% rule as maybe a break-even point, but regardless, even whenever you're investing with the 1% rule three years ago, you're going to run your numbers and you're going to verify that those numbers are proper. No, you have to run your numbers. Numbers are key. In fact, I think you carry your phone around with you as much as I do, and I've got calculators on mm -hmm. here that I'm, I'm constantly putting numbers into it to make sure the numbers work once we look at a deal. You know, Don made an offer on a property like – two weeks ago in Gatlinburg. And I I sat at my phone and I just punched in all the numbers. I'm like, honey, it doesn't work. I'm like, even if it makes $90,000 a year, it doesn't work. It's got to make at least $126,000 a year for that property mm -hmm. to work for us. And she's like, oh, I wish I had known that. I'm like, well, honey, I know you're excited about the property, but the numbers tell us everything. So never fall in love with your property. You don't, don't fall in love with properties. Don't, don't, don't don't go in with no passionate attitude. Do your numbers. They make sense that they don't make sense. Invest or don't invest. But don't ever do anything off of emotion for sure. Yeah, and, and to that point, and my wife is really good at, at so much of what we do in our real estate company. But she saw the gross number and she wasn't taking out the property management fee, the taxes, the insurance. So once you back all that down and once you have the debt service, even with a 33% down payment on that property for a short-term rental, it didn't make sense. Like there would, we were possibly going to be negative on this. And she loves Gatlinburg so much. It's a great short-term rental market, but right now the prices are too inflated. And I said, look, it needs to come down a couple hundred thousand dollars. Then it will make sense. So we got people from all over the country. I actually had some people from other countries that are actually contacting me on some questions with stuff. So we got people from all over the place that are watching us. Mm -hmm. Speaking of our market, the Nashville market, okay. do you think that the housing market in Nashville is going to drop from where we are right here today, March of 2023? So the housing market in the mid-state, I'll just call it the mid-state, is unusual in that we kind of live in a bubble. We have a tremendous economic climate here. Businesses are moving to Nashville or the mid-state area, Franklin, even down into Murray County. Um, a lot of young, vibrant people live here. So there's a lot of synergy among peoples. And that makes for a very solid economy. To that end, we're also getting people flying in from California, New York, Illinois, these high-tax states. 
and bringing their money with them. So our housing market is unique in that unlike, and I'm not picking on any state in particular, let's use a state we touch, Kentucky to the north of us, is, you know, it doesn't have our economy. It doesn't have our tax-free income tax status. We don't have a state income tax in the state of Tennessee. That makes us one of nine states that do that. The other are Texas, Tennessee, New Hampshire, Washington State, North Dakota, Florida, Let's say New Hampshire. You said New Hampshire. Alaska and Wyoming, I believe, is the other one. I can't name them off like that. So <laughs> Tax guy. What all can I, I can do is listen. <laughs> and, and I think maybe Nevada. Um, so that makes us unusual in that people are flocking here. People are also flocking here for our way of life. And so that has buoyed our, our real estate market. We're not seeing drastic drops in real estate like you're seeing across the country in cities like Boise, Austin, um, Las Vegas. You're not seeing massive drops in our real estate here. Well, I there read are, an article the other day. Now, you may yeah. say yes or no to it, but I read an article the other day that, that said that they were expecting Nashville to still appreciate around 10% this year. Yeah, I think I read the same article. I think it's 10.1%. Something like that. And um, Nashville, it's just an, it's an incredible place to live. Tennessee is a great place to live, whether it's Chattanooga, Knoxville, Memphis, Jackson. You know, we have a wonderful economic climate here, which is booing our real estate market. So we're not seeing these drops. In fact, we're seeing appreciation. Are we seeing appreciation where we've seen it over the last few years? No, and I would say that's an anomaly, and that was the COVID world. You know, 25 30% in some years yeah. here in Nashville. We were making, in 2022 or 2021, we were making $1,000 an hour, 24 hours a day, every day of the year on Isn't appreciation. That, that was just appreciation. That was nothing else. And that was like 21% or 22% it was running at the time. That's incredible. And, and to that point of appreciation. That's money that you make. That's the money he's talking about that he wants to make that money when he sleeps. That money runs every single hour of every single day. It doesn't stop. Right. And when I say I want to make money while I'm sleeping, I want people to pay down the debt on the property I have. And I want that property to increase in value. So you create what's called a delta. And that delta is free money. That's money that I can go in and borrow and put on another deal, say with Winston, and hey, let's go build this deal. I've got money sitting over here waiting because I have a philosophy that I don't want my money sitting on the sidelines. I want it out there working for me at all times. So if I have $100,000 in my savings account, I want to figure out, okay, how can I deploy that out into the market to pay me every month and grow again so I can then take another $100,000 out of that same property and put it back out in the market and scale and scale and scale. Absolutely, absolutely. And so we were talking earlier about the debt that the government's gonna have to, about 23%, 26% of the debt is coming due in the next 12 months that is financed at less than 1.5%. And they're going to be more in that four to six percent range. They got to refinance. So now the government's got to print more money to to pay the debt in our country. And the yeah. more money they print, 
the appreciation has to happen because they're printing money. So the dollar is devaluing. And as the dollar devalues, your appreciating assets have to go up. And yeah, I do. mean, it's, it's like to. the perfect storm for somebody that invests in appreciating assets, regardless what the appreciating asset is. If the government prints money, the value of your dollar drops, the value of your asset goes up. And I've had a lot of people ask me on different podcasts, different articles that I've written for, um, how is this not a recurrence of 2008 to 2012? Well, the difference now is that we don't have the inventory. In 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, and even into 12, we had a glut of inventory with people buying properties they couldn't afford even if they weren't doing liar loans, which was stated income loans. And now we are so far behind on inventory. I think I saw a number the other day. We're like four months behind on keeping pace with the demand out there. But we've never caught up from all the construction that stopped in 08, 09, you know, when nobody building. I thought, I thought that they were behind like nationwide over 2 million houses that were short. Is that right or wrong? You know, two million might be right. I think I've seen the number high as as high as four million, um, but I know that so we, somewhere in that middle. Or yeah, we can't up keep up. Like what? there is a need for affordable housing. There's a need for starter homes. There's a need for elderly housing. There's a need out there, and if I could say anything to anybody out there, it's like it needs to be something you're comfortable with, but if you're listening to this or watching this now, don't bite off more than you can chew. Aim small, miss small. Don't go buy the $300,000 property. Go buy the $100,000 property. Aim small, miss small. Everything must cash flow. If it doesn't cash flow, don't buy it at all, correct? That's correct. Absolutely. And, you know, we've been very fortunate in that everything we've had, we got in really, really low on and it's, it's doing great. Even in the bad months when the short terms don't rent, the long terms carry them. So I don't particularly see that really low market coming back. No. I mean, everybody says, I, I think Wall Street's still scooping up a lot of stuff, private hedge funds. Yeah, you know, you know, scooping up rock. the inventory. I don't think we're going to see the foreclosure market crash that everybody's sitting there waiting for foreclosures to come on the board. You may find one, I don't know, but I don't think it's going to be anything like what I keep hearing that people expect. So another question that I get a lot, so you're an attorney and sure. you do this for a living. So every book behind me is a different company I own. Yep. Here and I got and I got some more on the other on on some other places, so those most of those companies hold real estate for me. So I have LLCs that hold my real estate. So I have I have a couple of different questions about that, sure. and and I'm gonna, I'm gonna play devil's advocate on your answer. So I'm okay. just gonna pre warn you on that. Sure. So for somebody just getting into the real estate business, would you suggest that they take their real estate that they're buying, they go buy one house, they go buy two houses? open up an LLC and put it inside the LLC right off the bat or not? That's a multifaceted question. And I'm going to kind of pull Cut it apart. Yeah, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to pull it apart. Um, first of all, if you're, if you're investing in real estate just to invest and that property is not your second home or your vacation home, you know, not your house be or house, at the beach or your house in the mountains. If this is just to rent out, put it into an LLC. Always. It does a couple things for you. One, it provides you asset protection. What does asset protection mean? It means 
If somebody gets hurt at that property and they decide to sue the owner of the property, they have to sue that LLC. And because an LLC stands for a limited liability company, your liability is limited to what is in that LLC. In this case, that property. That's it. Your personal assets aren't at play here. They're never going to be at play. The only time they're ever at play is if you've perpetrated a fraud upon somebody, which isn't really the case when you're renting out a property. So that's not a thing that people really need to worry about. I understand it gets brought up, but that's not the case. What about that um, that veil of LLC? What if they what if they pull something out of the LLC to go buy themselves something personally? Does that break that veil and then makes that LLC accessible? Sure. So what we're talking about is it's called piercing the corporate veil. So an LLC, if you imagine a triangle, the three sides of the triangle is your veil. That's your protection. So if you decide to take your LLC's business account debit card and go buy groceries with it, some people would argue that, oh, because you're using that to pay for your personal expenses, you're actually treating this like a checkbook that you personally own and it's not a standalone entity. And so because of that, you don't get afforded the protections of the limited liability structure of the LLC. I have two answers for that. One, don't buy your groceries out of your LLC. But two, if you do buy your groceries out of an LLC, don't make it a regular habit because you can take that money into income and claim it as a distribution and obviate that whole problem. But again, you have to treat an LLC like what it is. It's a separate company and it has to uh, adhere to the corporate formalities of being a limited liability. So technically, if you want money out of it, write yourself a check. Write yourself a check. Send it to you and then give yourself a 1099 or claim that income at the end of the year. Yeah. It's probably going to run. My LLCs all run through my personal finances anyway. So it's, it all. Yeah. And and that's important for people to understand. And when they get into real estate investing, they may see, oh, once I pay my note every month or my expenses for the limited liability company, I've got $500, $800 left over every month. It'd really be nice to, to take that money and go on a vacation. Well, fine. Write yourself a check. Write yourself a check. It's called a draw. Take a draw put it in your personal account and then go on vacation. So I moved my properties out of an LLC, out of my personal name. I had maybe 40 properties in my personal name whenever I switched to LLCs. When I wanted to do that, I contacted my accountant. Mm-hmm. My accountant told me don't do it. Why? I contacted my insurance company and my insurance company told me don't do it. My insurance company told me, they said, you are overinsured in every way. Case law protects you. You're not going to do anything that's going to break down to the point that anybody will ever be able to get to your personal assets. My accountant said basically the same kind of stuff. But at that time, I owned Mid-South Maintenance. I had mm-hmm. 70 employees on the road with 70 different vans of mine on the road, wrecking every time I turn around from texting and driving or doing whatever. And I got sued a lot, a lot. I mean, every time they got in a wreck, I got sued every time something bad Remember. happened. So I was panicking over that kind of stuff. So that's why I switched to the LLCs. And, and even at that particular point in time, I was told by my insurance company and my accountant, 
you're just creating more money because it's going to cost you to operate the LLC. I think it cost me maybe, what, $700 a year or so to operate an LLC, $400. It's not anything that's going to kill you by any means, but I'm just playing devil's advocate with sure. the questions. So you have some administrative costs associated with maintaining an LLC in the state of Tennessee and in any other state you go to, you have to file an annual report and that annual report requires you to pay an annual fee. In Tennessee, it's $300. In Wyoming, I think it's a hundred bucks. Um, in Delaware, it might be a hundred bucks. It might be lower than that. Um, I don't have the chart right now, but maintaining that corporate formality and then the LLC needs to file its own return. It's not actually a return that goes to the IRS. It's called an information return. It's called a K-10. It kicks out a K-1. That K-1 goes on your Schedule C and that's how it gets reported. But you do have to maintain those books for that property and you have to maintain those filings. If for no other reason, then if, for example, say, just pick one of these, Duncan Properties. Let's say Winston wants to sell Duncan Properties and all the assets within it. It's a lot easier to sell that LLC than it is to distribute out those mm -hmm. assets and then sell the assets. Because once you distribute out the assets, you may have what's called a liquidating event. And that liquidating event is a taxable event under the tax code. We're getting into tax law now, but it would create more tax than is necessary for Winston to actually pay if he just sold the entire LLC. So what advice would you have somebody out there 25 years old, they're wanting to, to get into real estate. They got a job that's making them, you know, $50,000 a year or something sure. like that. They don't have any money really in savings. Okay. I mean, how do they, how do they go out and start from nothing to, to go get their first rental house? That's a great question. That's a great question. And I wrote a book on real estate investing and it's called a lawyer's guide to uh, real estate investing, replace your income. And I talk about this and the best way for somebody very young to get involved in this is to house hack. So let's say you're, you can even do it renting your own apartment. If you're renting a two bedroom apartment, get a roommate, have them pay half the rent. And now what you had already budgeted to pay that rent can go into a savings account for you to save up to get a down payment. FHA will, mm -hmm. will have what, three and a half percent. Is that mm -hmm. right? Pretty three close. and a half percent down. Go find a nice little house and then buy it for three and a half percent down, move into it. And then if it's got two bedrooms, three bedrooms, rent out those bedrooms to roommates. They cover your note. You stay there for a year and then you move somebody else in, you move out. Now you're renting out that entire house. You've got equity building up. You're paying down the debt. You have a rental property and now you can go buy your next rental property. That's a good method. Another method is bird dog. Bring value to the table. If you can come up with a deal for Winston, for me, bring it to us. And if it's a viable deal, look, we may buy it and we may give you a piece of the equity for it. It's not going to be a lot of equity. We're going to tell you that now, but it's going to be something. And that's going to be your forced foray into real estate investing. You're going to get a check. And you can do that through bird dog and same thing as wholesaling. I mean, basically 
you can Google wholesale and look up the definition of it. A lot of people will pay you for the deal or they'll let you have a piece of the deal. You know, as, as Brian said, it may not be a big piece of the deal, it'll be a small piece of the deal. But, but as an investor, you know, I'm going to pay somebody a commission anyway to bring me a property. Yeah. I don't care if I'll give it to a real estate agent or an individual that made my grandmother pass away and we want to sell this house. How much will you give me for the house? Yeah. I say, hey, I'll give you 200000 for the house. Okay, well, you give me 212000 I want 6% commission off of that. Right. Then I'll do the numbers. And if it's worth the two hundred twelve, you give them the two hundred twelve. And there's people out there that will do that. As an investor, we're not we're we're accustomed to that kind of stuff. So we don't look at that as somebody trying to rip us off. We look at that as okay, maybe that person gets another deal and they bring it to us also and we get more deals off of it. So I have a, a, a law partner that bought a property in Jackson, Tennessee. He bought it for forty one thousand five hundred dollars. It's a duplex. Bad part of town. He went in and put $13,000 into it. So now we're at 54.5. Rented out both sides for $780 a piece. That's not a bad return. Oh, it gets better. <laughs> then he took those leases to the bank and did a DSCR loan. It appraised for $85,000. He picked up a check last Friday for $65,000. That day, he went under contract for two more properties in Jackson for an $85,000 buy. So that puts his first buy at an infinite return. He's got yep. no, he don't have a penny invested in a deal and he's still making money off of it. And that's where we all want to be. We all want to be at that infinite return place. Yeah, and he's closing, I think, March 15th on these other two properties. And what he's doing is called the Burr method, and you'll hear that a lot. But he bought the property, he rehabbed the property himself, he rented out the property himself, he refinanced the property himself, and he's repeating that process. Along the way, he is snowballing his initial $55,000 investment. So when he got $65,000 back for putting $55,000 into it. That's a win. He made 10 grand and it's paying for itself and he's still cash positive every month after servicing that debt. So that take how long has he been doing that? How how long in this deal? He bought that house or that duplex, I want to say in August. Okay, so he's 6 months into it, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. He's already made that turn, so in the next six months, he's getting two more houses, you said, so he's going to have three houses in, in a period of a year. He went from nothing, you know, a $50,000 investment, mm -hmm. turned that into an infinite return, and now picking up two more residences, so now he's going to have three houses he's making money off of. Then he just rinses and repeats that process again and again and again. How long does it take, really, to be at 50 houses? It does not take that long. Yeah, we were. he and I were talking, um, I think, yesterday, and we think the number of houses he needs is 15 to replace his salary. Once he hits 15 houses, he has replaced his salary, which means... So if he retired then, he could retire. retire making the exact same money. Same money. And, and living, not living high on the hog probably because he would need to work a little bit more for that, but make living the exact same lifestyle he lives right now. Absolutely. And given the depreciation on those properties, when he does a cost segregation study on them, 
taking into account all the expenses necessary, like software, his phone. You know, he's doing all the work himself. So the travel back and forth, that's all deductible to him. And at the end of the day, even though he's cash positive, he's tax negative. So he doesn't owe taxes on all this money he's making, which is exactly how we all want to be. We want our money working for us, not us working for our money. And even as an attorney, he won't be owing any taxes on his money he's making from you as as a partner. Or whatever. That, that's right. So business. he's, you know, he gets his money I mean, and because he has this real estate over here and he's a partner with me, he's able to take these losses and shelter his other income because he has made sure, and we sat down one day in the office, that he is a real estate professional. And that's a very important, critical issue that you that's have to maintain. Hours a, a year. 750 hours a year. You have to work 750 hours a year in real estate. And that can be anything. Yeah, that's... It, it really could. It's, it's a very broad definition. Um, and, you know, there are rules associated with this. And I encourage you to look them up. But, you know, there are like three factors you have to hit. It has to be seven. But you got some videos on that too, though. I do. I've got um, videos on... Uh, we're going to give you all of Brian's information. Um, our producer is going to put that in the bottom of the screen for you at the end so that you have all of his contact information. You can follow him on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, and um, order his book. Learn a little bit about him. Contact him if you need him. So you're not, you're not a, a trunk slammer chasing attorney. You do a lot of federal cases. You do. Yeah, we, we handle a lot of uh, partnership disputes, a lot of real estate disputes, a lot of construction cases, a lot of business disputes, a lot of tax disputes. That's our kind of world. We're not what people call plaintiff's attorneys. I, I couldn't tell you the first thing about a car wreck. I don't know anything about it. It's not my world. I don't live in it. So he's an attorney, but he's not a complete scumbag. Right, right. So... <laughs> And to be fair, <laughs> while I'm an attorney, I'm not your attorney. So everything I say here, I'm going to make a disclaimer now. <laughs> Check with your own lawyer on this. Um, but for us, we practice what we preach. We are putting our money where our mouths are, and we are in the trenches. You know, I was in Chattanooga yesterday cleaning out a house, paying contractors, making sure things were working right. And that qualifies me as a real estate professional. So I am actively involved in my real estate. Learn about active versus passive when it comes to real estate investing. It's very important for you. So last question, so we don't yep. get everybody tuning out on us because they get bored with it blasting too long. Sure. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Well, Winston, I, I hope I'm you in 10 years. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I, I hope I'm, you know, making hundreds of thousands of dollars a month and looking for my next deal. Honestly, I have a three, five, seven year plan. In three years, I want to be out of practicing law and helping people with real estate and doing my next deal. And five years, you know, I would hope my wife and I are both doing this full time in seven years. Um, my son will be going off to college. So we're going to try to create as much wealth as we can from this standpoint forward to make sure that we can put him through school, 
that we can see on a moment's notice if we want to, but we would also like to start developing a lot more real estate. And the first step with us is with Winston. We are, we're going all in on a deal with Winston to let's start developing real estate. Let's, let's really do this. Let's lean into this. So we're doing a complete deal. We buy the land, all the engineering, nothing's done on it. We do all the engineering. We get everything done with the soil scientists. We do all the dirt work. We're going to bring it up from the ground to, to 10 units. And it'd be a cool thing. We, we were talking earlier whether we'd finish, be able to finish it this year or not. I don't know if we can, but we might. We'll see. See how that plays out. But we appreciate you being here Absolutely. with us. Absolutely. I'm thrilled to be there. here. appreciate y'all tuning in. Um, check out some other videos we got. Brian T. Boyd is what his stuff is under. We will have a something in the bottom of the notes here for you so you can get that. But we appreciate you for tuning in. Have a great day. Great. Thanks for having me.